This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Uh, tonight we are continuing on our uh, series, which we're speaking about, the 13 principles of faith. Okay, it's good, I remember that. Um, we are learning tonight, That's it, right? Yeah, okay, fine. Okay, so now let us begin. As we begin, as always, we do a very, very quick recap on the first... I think we did the first seven already. Wow. The first seven of the 13 principles of faith. Very, very important uh, because we mentioned that the Rambam uh, you know, says that the majority of these uh, of 13 principles of faith, if one doesn't believe, one doesn't have a share in the world to come. So let us do a quick recap on these 13 principles of faith. Number one, one has to believe that God is the creator. What does it mean that God is the creator? God is the creator that he creates from nothing. That's a very, very high level as opposed to uh, like creations from like uh, human creations. We create from something. But God creates Yeshme from nothing. Also, part of number one, that the fact that God is not only a creator, that God exists, which is obviously part included in the creator, but God exists and God oversees anything. He's a man, he, he's one that oversees all of the creation. Number two is that God is one. That is, that not only he is one, what, what I mean by, by saying by who he's one, that, that all the bad, all the good, all comes from God. Everything comes from God. The pleasure, the pain, the bad, the good, everything, 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 with a line on top, that comes from God. Number, number three is God is incorporeal. God doesn't have a physical body. We cannot, we cannot, uh, you know, think of God as a, uh, as a body. God does not have a body. Not only God is not physical, we said also God is not Spiritual. Oh, okay, excellent. Okay, we're in class number four, whatever. Um, and Baruch Hashem, you guys, I know that. I think we're in class number six already. Oh, time flies. It's unbelievable. Okay, so uh, God is incorporeal. Number four. Number four is that God is who we shun. He is before time and he will be after time. God proceeds and it... It's not exceeds. What comes... Whatever. God supersedes. Thank you. And, you know, the, you know, the, the uh, creation, which means is that God is above and beyond all creation. The, the, the difference here is, is that not only we can't comprehend or understand God from our own personal perspective, we cannot comprehend and understand God from the perspective of all reality. That we, we, we can't even begin to comprehend it. Okay, that was number four. Number five is we said that God, you could only pray only to very good, God. Okay, excellent. Um, God, singular. Uh, not anything else, only to God. No intermediary needed, no anything else needed other than just God. Now, when we're saying you're going to pray to God, we're saying that, that the, the idea, the, the highest level of prayer is that you realize that when you self, you do some, some, something called self-nullification, realize that you're nothing, and that everything comes from God, which means is that everything positive, and negative that comes in your life is because of God. When you realize that, when you pray with that mentality, that is a very, very high level of kavanah, that's a very high level of prayer. That is number five. Number six is what we spoke two weeks ago, is that all the prophets that they said is true. All the real prophets, I should say, that they said, you know, is true. Meaning, you know, actually before we say the meaning, the, the reason of the importance of this, of this concept is that the Torah is based on prophecy. The way that we know what God wants from us is based off prophecy. That is why this entered into the, the 13 principles of faith. The, also, we mentioned that in order to be a prophet, you have to be very, 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 very holy. Yeah, righteous. You have to be very, very, also with a hot line on top, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, holy for, for this. 
when prophets experienced prophecy, they also, it was a very traumatic experience. They were, you know, they shaking, they were, you know, they, they lost, you know, physical function. Um, it, it was also in a way of a metaphor. There was a very, very high level. Number seven of the seven, of the 13 principles of faith is that Moshe Rabbeinu was the father of all prophets. What does that mean that he was the father of all prophets? It means that he re- reached the highest level. That he was a, that when God spoke to him, as it says in Bamidbar in Numbers chapter 12 verse 8, Pe'el Pe'el Dababo. Face to face I will speak to him. The mouth to mouth I will speak to him. Meaning that, that God spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu. He had a sense of prophecy unlike any other sense of, uh, you know, of prophets, you know, before, before him. What we spoke last, last week, yeah. It was last week. You know what's weird about time? Time could either happen very, very quickly, which it does happen very, very quickly. But when you think about it, it was only last week when I spoke about this. There's so much that's happened since last week. That's all, I, just last week I spoke about it. It's crazy. It just blew my mind. I figured I'd share that with you. Most of you probably didn't understand what I just said. Welcome to my class. Okay, what can I tell you? Um, the, there was four differences with, with Moshe Rabbeinu than other prophets. Number one, when Moshe Rabbeinu, when other prophets had a prophecy, they were in a trance or they were asleep. Moshe Rabbeinu was awake. Number two, it was not done by a metaphor. It was done by a, um, it was done very, very clear what it, what, uh, you know, what, what God said to him. Number three is that the strength didn't fail him. He didn't fall to the ground. He didn't have any convulsions. He didn't have any, Moshe Rabbeinu was as if he was awake and alert. Number four is that he received prophecy whenever, whenever he, uh, whenever he wanted. Now, we, we went through last week in a very, very important class last week when we spoke about the importance of Moshe, Rabbe, of Moshe Rabbeinu is that Moshe Rabbeinu acted as a non-interactive interface, which means is that everything that God spoke about that's what um, that's what Moshe Rabbeinu that's what Moshe Rabbeinu delivered. There was no there was no change in it. Okay, now we're ready to begin the eighth principle of faith. By the way, you guys realize what the importance why I keep on reviewing the first you know of the principles. I, I, I keep on doing it on a purpose. There's many other series that I did. I never used to review or majority of the of the of the um, of the series that I did. I never used to redo. Review. This one is very, very important. That's why I'm constantly reviewing it. And even though it's taking up 10 minutes of the time that I don't have to waste, because there's so much I need to speak to, but it's still so important to review it that I have to review, I, like I have to. Like I, I don't have a choice, my, my hands are handcuffed. Like I can't. I, I need to review because of the importance of this thing. So um, thank you for bearing with me until now. Whoever did not bear with me, I wish you best of luck on your life and your endeavors. Um, but um for all those that uh, that did. I should probably speak slower for the for the introduction. You know, by the way, by the way, this is not this is by the way, we didn't start the class yet. Um, the you know it's funny because like the people online think that we just started recording 10 minutes ago. We've been talking for like 30 minutes already. You know, like what what they need to know is it's important to come to class because there's a there's there's a there's a prequel and a sequel to every class that doesn't get captured online. And if you come to the class, then you get the privilege to that. If you don't come to the class, then again, may God bless you. Um, not as much as those. No, okay, okay, okay. I believe with perfect faith. Perfect faith. All the Torah that's standing in our in our hands. It is the one that was given to Moshe Rabbeinu Shalom. So now, what do we mean by this, uh, by, by the eighth principle of faith? Now, what we're talking about over here is that it's something very, very important. There's a lot of things that we're going to be speaking about tonight. It happens to be that I'm going to try to combine, if time allows us, um, I'm going to try to combine principle eight and principle nine today. If time doesn't allow us, then we'll just do uh, you know eight today, but I'm really hoping that we can get eight and nine today. The... Um, the importance of this is is so important, but it happens to be that we just finished the divinity series, and we just finished speaking a lot about the Torah. 
We just speaking a lot about the oral law, which we we'll, which we'll do a little bit of review on some you know certain aspects of it, but and and some things that are be going to be uh, you know very new and uh, very may or may not be controversial. But okay, now let us begin the Torah, the the laws. For example, the lulav, the etrog, the pesach, the, the, any any mitzvah that we have today is exactly the same that we used to do when Moshe Rabbeinu gave the gave the Torah. Now this is very very important to uh, you know to understand because people think that. Judaism went through evolution. Went through, it became over time, it changed, and it became more, you know, more laws came into effect, more changes came into effect. The Torah that we have now is exactly the same as the Torah that we had the Moshe Rabbeinu. Yes, 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 there is some rabbinical prohibitions that existed before Moshe Rabbeinu, and we'll speak about that now, but the Torah laws are exactly the same as it was in the beginning of, uh, you know, of the time. Now, when Moshe Rabbeinu wrote the Torah, it was, he was writing to God like a secretary that was dictating exactly what to write by the boss. Boss was saying, hey, write, you know, uh, and God spoke to Moshe saying this. And Moshe was reading exa- writing exactly what God was telling him. The, you know, the, the, the idea between this is that there's no difference between that Uvne Ham, Kushum, and it goes on. There's no difference between the sons of Ham, who are Kushum, and it goes on to other few names. To wit, to the difference which, uh, you know, a different Pasuk, for example, I am the God that took you out of Be'er Mitzrayim. Many people go read the Torah. There are some part, verses of the Torah which is like, and the children of Kush is, you know, and the children, I'm sorry, of Ham was blah, 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 blah. And, you know, we think, okay, well, this is a good verse, but it's a verse. But then there's a verse, like, I am God who took you out of Egypt. Well, that's a verse, you know, like that. So, you know, here. No, no, no. They're both on the same exact level. They're both directly from God. Now, what is so important about realizing the, the, the idea that this is directly both from God? The reason for that, the, the ramification for this is, is that every single verse, every single letter, every single word of the Torah was given directly by God to Moshe Rabbeinu and it's exactly what we have today. Now why is this so important? Because we cannot decide what we want to listen to and what we don't want to listen to. Okay, we're going to listen to this. We're not going to listen to blah, 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 you know, this and this. Now, this is where it's going to come. Um, I'm going to say two words. The words are modern orthodoxy and... That is a very, very wide spectrum. When I say the idea of modern orthodoxy, and I'm, I'm trying to be very careful. I know I'm not going to be very careful, uh, but I'm trying to. Um, modern orthodoxy. So the idea with modern orthodoxy, uh, let's speak a little bit about it, shall we? Okay, so um, sometimes it's good to come on a cold day to uh, talk class. So what can I tell you? Okay, um, modern orthodoxy. So anybody know... How modern orthodoxy started? What was the reason that it started? Yeah, lack of, uh, in America. Yes, yes, and yes. So the the idea really is is that it started off as like modern orthodoxy doesn't mean that you don't listen to the Torah. It means that you listen to every single law of the Torah, but you incorporate it. Okay, you go to university, you go to college, you get a degree, you, you learn secular studies. That, you know, the idea of modern orthodoxy when it started was, it was still orthodox. I want to say it is, but I'm, you'll soon see why. It wants to start off with like, okay, it's, it's, it's still orthodox, but it incorporates a sort of a modern incorporation into the world. So they still do the college, they still do universities, they still get jobs, you know, like, it's a difference of like, no college, no university, you understand the difference between like the, the, the you know, the ideology behind a modern orthodoxy. So, 
the the idea with that, that I want to really discuss is um, when you speak about modern orthodoxy, it's a very wide spectrum. It's a very, very wide spectrum uh, when you're dealing with this. Now, I came across this, uh, this statement today, which is why I'm saying that I intended to speak about something else, and this you know, came into, uh, you know, into play. I came across, across a statement today which bothered me to an immense proportion, like a crazy amount, of, you know, like, like bothered me like in an unhealthy way. Like it was unhealthy. That was, this was a statement that you have orthodox women, like, like legit orthodox women, they cover their hair. Modern orthodox may or may not cover their hair depending on the interpretation of the law that they follow. Let me repeat that. It was just like, I don't know who said it, I don't know who, where, where it came from. I, I came across it, and it bothered me to like the most utmost. Yeah, that modern orthodox, the orthodox is women that cover the hair. Modern orthodoxy is depending on the interpretation of the law is where they, if they cover the hair, if they don't cover the hair. Let me be very clear in what I'm saying. I'm feeling like president, uh, ex-president, uh, <laughs> Obama, thank you. <laughs> Let me be very clear, okay? Um, that, the, you know, there is no interpretation of covering the hair. There is a pasuk in Bamidbar, chapter 5, verse 18, which deals with adultery of sota, which a woman who commits adultery, that a kohen uncovers her hair. The Gemara in sota, page 72, 72, goes and speaks about it and explains the idea of the hair covering for a woman is a biblical obligation. There is no, well, I don't understand it this way. I'm, no, no. There is an obligation biblically to cover a hair as a married woman. Period. There is no interpretation of saying, hey, well, listen, I am from, uh, you know, I don't, I don't cover my hair because I follow this opinion. There is no this opinion. I mean, it could be this opinion, but it may be called reform. Like it's not, you know, the orthodox, you cover your hair as you're married. There's no, there's, there's no, it's a biblical commandment. The same idea with like, Shomer Negiah. And, and I don't want to get too much into this because I want to set a whole separate, separate class just for this. But, you know, the Shomani you know, means that you're, the, the one gender is not allowed to touch the opposite gender unless they're married and unless it's at a kosher time. That's, you know, that's the time. But you have people that are public leaders, let's call them. You know what? I'll tell you. Um, I was once in a synagogue that was a modern orthodox, you know, synagogue, and I'm using air quotes for modern orthodox, um, that um, there was someone on the higher up, I think it was an assistant rabbi, that, um, first of all, let me paint you this picture. I went over to this modern orthodox synagogue. The mechitza was yay high, okay, which right away told me, uh-oh, this is a problem. Problem, you know, like, whatever, you know, like, the story in itself is a very, very long story. I can't get into it where I was, why I was, you know, in, in the you know, particular ways. So after the, after the prayers, um, people generally go and give a, you know, Shabbat Shalom, you know, handshake to the rabbi. Um, woman do it maybe to the rabbi. There was a line of women waiting for the, maybe I could say assistant rabbi. That's pretty much why I think it was. Um, now, halakhically, that doesn't go, you know, especially as an assistant rabbi in a synagogue. Um, halakhically, this 
doesn't go as well. And when I'm saying this, I mean hugs don't go. Rabbis don't hug the woman congregants. It's just simple Orthodox Judaism. There's no really like, I don't hold to this opinion. There's no, there's just one opinion. You know, you don't hug your woman, you know, congregants. That's generally how it goes. And I was uh, witnessing something that I had a, I'm like, hmm, am I, am I leave allowed to pray over here? Like, you know, some questions, you know, came into my mind. What's going on over here? You know, like, it, it was very, very problematic. I'm like, all of a sudden over here, you know, again, maybe it was, there were all his sisters, you know, I have to give the benefit of the doubt, you know, like we have to say, like, probably there were all his sisters, um, a very large family, obviously Jewish family, uh, but um, it, it, it's, it's a little bit of a problem, you know, like you have those people, um, I'm not Shomer Nagia, you know, which means it's like, no, like, I don't follow this law. Like, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm not religious. You can tell me the same thing. Like, you know, like, I, there are certain people who decide what they're going to follow, what they're not going to follow. And just, you know, FYI, there's a pasuk in, uh, in Leviticus, in Vayikra, chapter um, 18, verse 19. It says, Ve'el aisha binidat, binidat tumata, when a woman, which is in her impurity, you don't even come close to uncover her uncleanliness, uh, her nakedness is a, you know, better, uh, you know, you know, in translation. The Rambam learns that. Maimonides learns that. It's a biblical prohibition to go and touch the opposite gender. When people go and say, well, you know, like, again, when I say modern orthodoxy, I don't know, whatever, like, people. Maybe they call themselves modern orthodox, maybe they don't. They start claiming, well, I don't, yeah, like, oh, I'm not Chopra, I'm not this. I'm like, what does that mean? There is a law, and you have to follow it. What does that mean that you're not following this law? Like, I, I don't understand it. Like, there's, there is a concept of, you know, like, listen, you know, the halachot are very complex. There's a lot of stuff. And sometimes we fall. We're human and we mess up. Yeah, it's true. We're human and we mess up. I understand that. But as a, like, before you mess up, you're like, oh, no, no. <laughs> In my Bible, this doesn't count. Like, who are you to start deciding what makes it, what doesn't make it? You know, you have, like, there's some, there's some sex in modern orthodoxy. Modesty? No, we don't listen. <laughs> no, no. Shabbat? Yeah, to the best that we understand. There are many things that we don't know. Now, I came across this, um, this is what I was telling you earlier, that I came across this, this study, that, uh, the statistic that came, that I, uh, you know, I sent over to uh, Rabbi Yoron Uven today, and... And he was like, he's like, I never saw this, but he's like, I'm, uh, you know, this is, this is like, I, I don't remember the exact words was, I don't know if it was depressing, shocking, something, it, it was really, you know, terrible. This is, was a study that was done for modern Orthodox participants. Now, I was speak, I was thinking about, should I speak about this topic? Should I not speak about this topic? Because when I read this study, I'm like, I have to make a lecture just on this topic. This doesn't, like, I can't, but... Because of my emotional state, and this is my therapy to some extent, I have to speak about it. So um, there was a study done that it was by by three thousand nine hundred and three participants of modern of the modern Orthodox world. Now they put in that roughly, uh, you know, according to Pew Research, the modern Orthodox community is roughly about two hundred, a little bit over two hundred thousand Jews. So it's, it was a very small percentage of, you know, uh, you know a little bit under 4,000 Jews. But when was this? I, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't recall. I have, to look into, I have to look into the study. As I was speaking, I was thinking about when, when this happened. I don't have to. It was fairly recent, but I don't remember how long ago. The, there was, it was a very, very long study. I'm only going to say, you know, part of it now. Uh, maybe a little different time. We'll speak about it in more length. The tefillin. 
the idea of tefillin. This is dealing with modern Orthodox males, obviously, because males are only the ones that are required to uh, put on tefillin. There are 38% of this, of this you know, study that was done that don't really hold to the highest level of the obligation of tefillin. Out of that 38%, 27% of that are minimally or not observant on tefillin. Now, when I read that, I'm like, you're not modern Orthodox. You're not Orthodox. Like, with modern Orthodox, like, where do you draw the line? You're not listening to God. How do you, how do you, 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 you go and you say yourself as you're, you're an Orthodox person. You're not listening to God. The Torah says that you have to go and you have to put on tefillin. You're not listening to the, I, it, it boggled my mind. The Tarat Mishpacha, which I can't even begin to say how important it is. This is the purity of the family. You know, with, with the woman going to the mikvah, the, the separation between the man and the woman, when the woman is, is on her, you know, period. There's certain ports in time that, that it's, a, it's a fundamental to Jewish faith. 42% of the modern Orthodox population that took this, this uh, survey, not so observant on it. Out of that 42%, 20, 20% of that was either minimally or not observant at all on Ta'at Mishpacha. I'm like, how do you begin to begin to say that this is your, your orthodox? Where, where, where do you begin to even... I couldn't. I couldn't even begin to understand this. Where do you come from? Where, 20, this, where was this conducted on? Like, it was sent out to a bunch of modern orthodox synagogues. The rabbi sent it out to their congregants, and the congregants went and they, and they uh, participated. If you want, remind me. Message me afterwards. I'll send you the research. I'll send you the research. I'll send you everything. I'll send you the research. You'll read the entire thing. It will shock you. You'll put on ash sack and ashes. You'll mourn for a little bit. Um, and hopefully we'll go through therapy and then we'll get on better in our lives. But um, the uh, I'm ta- I read it today. I, got, I came across it today. Um, 24% doubt that God is involved in day-to-day activities. 24% is almost a quarter. That's one in four people. Doubt that God is involved in day-to-day activities. 10%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but what I'm about to say is a crazy high number. They have doubts if God created the world. This is like, you know, 16% have doubts or don't believe that God gave the Torah to Hanahal Sinai. I'm like, what is... This is not orthodox. This is not even modern orthodox. This is reform. Like, what do you call yourself? Or this is not. And I was like, and I was, I was when I was reading the study, I was like, I was boggled by it. But I'm like, how could it be? How could it be that people go and believe it? Because you realize that some of these things that I said, you don't believe in Torah from Sinai. You don't believe that God created the world. You have no share in the world to come. You have no share in the world to come. And as I was reading it, as I was going through, I looked at what was the percentage of the, of the people of the men that went and studied Torah every single day. And this is where everything started making sense. 35% of men study Torah every single day. The rest, not every single day. Once a week, once a month, once a year, never was also an option. You're like, you know, like, you're talking about somebody that never started Torah. I'm like, of course you don't study Torah, you never knew it. And it's so interesting because that's the men. The women, 15% uh, were, were studying daily. Um, which was, which I, which I found very interesting. Now, 15, 15, 15%. Now, this bothered me. Like, the Torah is unchanging. You can't start beginning to change it. When you call yourself modern orthodox, that means what we started off saying. You know, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're affiliated with the world, you're involved in the world, but you're still orthodox. When you're starting to decide what you're going to listen to, what you're not going to listen to, don't call, that's not orthodox anymore. It's very, very important. I hold this very, very highly. That if someone doing, is doing something wrong, Admit it. Realize you're doing something wrong. Okay, listen, I'm doing something wrong, and let, let's move on with whatever it else that I have to deal with. But you have to realize you're doing something wrong. The problem is, is that I've spoken to people, and until today, but I, I'll be honest with you, until today, until I read this study, 
I didn't understand the the um, the extent of what this is, the the problem is. You know, like I've spoken to people and be like, okay, you know, but I'm modern orthodox. So whenever I give them the benefit of that, okay, modern orthodox. So you you, you know you agree with everything else. You go follow the alchab. You do that. But when I was looking at the you know the studies today, I was like, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? Modern? This is not modern orthodoxy. This is not orthodoxy at all. You don't believe in God. You don't believe in Torah. You don't believe. You don't believe in Shabbat. You don't believe in Tzad Mishpacha. You don't believe in all these things. I'm like, how can you call yourself Orthodox? How can you begin to even say that? And what's scary is that people go in and they convince themselves that this is what it is. And I'm like, I couldn't understand why. Did it, what's the issue? And then I realized people are not learning. If you don't learn, how do you expect to understand anything? If you don't study, how do you expect to even begin to comprehend the ideology of the Torah? You know, I have um, every every so often I had debates with people on the Torah. And, um, you know, majority of the time when people start going, is there no heat on this? Is this not working? Yeah, yeah. All of them? You can't figure it out? just got a little bit warmer. Can we get yeah. Even that one's not working? Which one's this one? Can we get the one that's this one not working at all? Is that, is that this is, this is, this is, this is just, no, no, yeah. No, we know. That's, I'm talking about that. That one, this one doesn't work. But it, this one doesn't work over there? They're all, oh, well, you turned it off. Yeah, because it's not, there's nothing. No, it, ta- it takes time. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> okay. For all those online, and we apologize, we're dealing with, what are we, seven degrees, you know, Fahrenheit outside. Um, you know, it's funny because, you know, I don't want to put you guys uncomfortable. I'm very comfortable in this temperature. <laughs> I, I'm very comfortable in this temperature, but as I see more people putting on coats, I'm like, is it cold in here? And like, you know, it's beginning to, okay. So, um, Okay, I apologize. You should realize the reward that you're getting. If it's colder, no, yeah, I'm not. I'm, this is not a joke. Uh, not that I was everything that I said until now was a joke. But um, we're totally not getting to the full topic that I wanted. I apologize. Um, no, well, maybe I don't know. Who knows? You know, like um, you realize that if you're learning to law under uncomfortable situation, then you're getting more reward than you if you were learning it on uncomfortable situation. Yeah, technically, you should. Technically, you should. Technically, um, but again, at this day and age, when we have to make everything entertaining, everything comfortable, everything this, everything delicious, you know, you turn everything off, no one's going to show up over here. I'm going to be speaking to myself. <laughs> turn on the AC is also an option. Um, so, okay, the, you know, when you're going, and, uh, you know, uh, when you, I don't know, when I'm going, let me speak about myself, when I'm, spe- when I'm, when I'm debating with people that don't believe in the Torah and have problems with it against, uh, you know, the, the Torah, so I always look for you know what? Not a lot of people here today. Let's reveal some of my secrets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, when I debate people, when I debate people, people think that I'm debating them. Like the people, you know, that I'm debating them. I'm not debating you. I'm doing research on you. When I ask questions, I'm really researching what it is about you that you don't believe. Um, and this is what I, this is, this is my, this has always been my method. That, you know, people think, okay, we're debating. I'm gonna say this, you're gonna answer this. I'm gonna say this. Now, I'll ask you a question, you'll answer it. I'm, I don't even care so much about what you're saying. I'm just trying to figure out the source of your problem. Like, what is the reason that you don't believe in God? Like, what is the reason that you believe in Torah? So you could be, and that's why sometimes in debates, I jump from topic to topic, 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 because I'm trying to figure out the pinpoint, the, you know, the idea of it. Some people, you know, whatever, they take it in different, in different ways. They're debating me, I'm researching you. You know, that's usually how it goes. Um, 
reason why I don't feel so bad saying that is that people that I debate don't usually listen to my classes. <laughs> so um, it's not usually so problematic because if they listen to my classes, then they probably wouldn't need to debate me. Uh, but you know, so so I go and I and I research the person that's debating me. And, and this has always been my method, and I, I found success in this method when, I'm, when I want to try to fix the person. Not the, not the crowd, when I'm dealing with the person, that's the best way. So, a lot of times what I realize when I'm researching the person is that the, the people, there, there are two types of people, well, there are many types of people, but when I try to categorize to them, they know what they're talking about, and they don't know what they're talking about. And even the ones that they think that they know what they're talking about, a lot of them fall into the category that they don't know what they're talking about. And what I mean by that is that some people go and they go online and they try to find Bible criticisms. They try to find reasons to not believe in the Torah. They try to find reasons to say, okay, listen, maybe the Torah does not exist. Maybe it's not true. Maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. And they, and, and they start learning, researching online. Majority of these websites are all trying to refute the Christian Old Testament. Now, the Christian Old Testament is very, very different than the Torah. Now you think, okay, the Old Testament is the same as the Torah. It's very different because you're, you're focusing it on a point, a perspective from a Christian, a Christian for you point. And it's very different from the way that the actual legitimate way of learning the Torah, which is the real way. So, I'm dealing with these people, and sometimes you deal with people that do research, and sometimes you deal with people that don't do research. Recently I was dealing with somebody that has done research, but he's done research in the Christian aspect. Which means that he was doing research and saying like, oh, this is where the Torah is not true because X, Y, and Z. Now, Usually, when I see somebody that comes from a religious background and all of a sudden starts researching from a Christian perspective, it brings one point, shoots in me into mind, that this guy is leaving religion based off emotional reasons, not intellectual reasons. And, and, and let, me, let, me just, let me elaborate on that to, to, you know, to, you know, to, so that you guys could understand it. There are usually two categories that I debate with when, when dealing with religion. Number one is people that were never religious before. They don't know anything. They, I'm saying they're beginning, their understanding of Torah is solely based on like Christians and movies and things that they understand. That's one. Then you have another category, which is people that were religious, they left religion, and now they're asking questions or they're debating, depending on what, you know, the aspect that they're dealing with. Two different categories. When you're dealing with a category that was religious and left off, left, you know, moved, moved away from the religion, it's a very, very interesting to find out why. Why did you leave the religion? What was the reason that took you away from it? Was it intellectual? Did you actually study the Torah? Did you actually go through the Torah and you say, you know what, I have some questions? Or is it that you had already problems from beforehand and you were looking for problems? You know that, that concept? This works a lot in dating, by the way, as well. There are some people that date and the guy is really good. Really sweet guy, really good. You know, everything is great. Me done, everything is great. But they're not so attracted to the looks or whatever it is. And by the way, it's flip side as well if you're dealing with men and women, whatever it is. You just flip the, you know, the guy-the-girl ratio. The, um, you know, and, and they start saying, you know what, maybe it's not for me. But really, what is it based off? It's not really based off that. It's based off the fact that you're not attracted to him. So you start saying, okay, you know what, it's not really good because of that. And because our, you know, ideologies, you know, is not the same. You start putting things into it. Are, the question is, are you looking for problems? Or are there are problems? And I'm not saying that there are, they're not in the dating world, but this is the way that, that human brains think about. When we don't want something, we look for problems. So there are sometimes when people live, leave religion, they want to really leave religion. So what do they do? They look for the problems. It's not that they had the problems and that's why they left religion. They actually were looking for the problems. Somebody who is going and is looking at Christian sources, Christian websites, to try to find problems with the Old Testament, with the Torah, 
That's somebody who is looking for problems. Not somebody who is like studying the Torah and being like, you know what? I have some questions. It doesn't make sense and I'm leaving religion. That's somebody that's leaving the Torah is looking for questions. Somebody who is looking for questions, I categorize those people, not all of them, majority of them, into an emotional aspect. You're leaving the religion because of emotions, not because of intellect. Because if you would be looking at it, if you would be living, leaving the religion because of intellect, you would be going and studying the Torah. You would actually study the source. Are you guys following me so far? Okay. You would actually be studying, uh, you know, starting the, the source. And whenever I bring this up, let's say I'm debating a certain person, and I say this is an, you're leaving because of emotion. It's like, no, it's completely intellectual. And I respond, and, they, and it's very, very difficult for them to comprehend that. It's very difficult because they, they really feel, they really feel, they really, really feel that it comes from an intellectual aspect. They're like, no, it's completely intellectual, it has nothing to do with emotions. And my, so my response is that if it's really intellectual, then how come you've never studied the Torah? You never saw it. And then, you, what's the response afterwards? I went to yeshiva. I'm like, that doesn't matter even a little bit. There are so many people that went to yeshiva that know nothing, unfortunately. There's some people that sort of space out through their college years, through their high school years, through their elementary years. They come out and be like, what did you learn? I don't know. I, nothing, really. Like, they really come out with nothing. They come out with no knowledge. Just because you went to yeshiva doesn't mean that you're leaving religion because of an intellectual aspect. It could be completely because of an emotional aspect. And the majority of the times, if you, if you, uh, you know, I've dealt with this a lot of times, some people agree with me, some people don't, I still hold very strong with it, a lot of times it has to do with emotions. It has nothing to do with the fact that you studied the Torah, and you're so smart, and you figured out some problems, and you went off. The fact is, you wanted to go off. You wanted to go off, now you went to find some problems. Where did you go to find some problems? You went to Christian websites. You went to Christian websites, and say, oh, look how, now, I'm not talking about Christian website. I'm talking about the atheistic Christians. You know, the Christians that went and they left their Christianity and that's how you went and used because there's a lot of website of those. So they went and they, and they studied them. And how do, I, how, how do I usually pick these up when I deal with these debates? It's because I've read those websites also. Where do you think I get my information from? You know, it's not, you're not the only one. I know, when you're asking me a question, I know where you get your information from. And you know, like, I know where you get it from. What's your, I have so many, how did this come? I don't know if I ever mentioned this. I'm telling you, it's great that you guys came today. It's all, you know, this is stuff that I would never usually mention, uh, you know, before. I know, apparently I'm mentioning it online, so that makes no difference, but whatever it is. Um, I had a guy that used to ask me questions. And he used to ask me questions on contradictory verses in the Torah, which is fine. I have no problem. I'll go, I'll answer it. 99% of the time, you look at Rashi, answers it for you. You don't have to go too far. It's very simple. So, or you just know how to translate the words, and then it answers it for you. Um, and, after like maybe 4, 5, 10, 15 of these questions, I was like, you know what, I've spoken to this guy before. He's not that intellectual, but he's writing pretty intellectual to me. I copy and text, I copy and paste his entire question on... He emailed it to you? He emailed me. Co- copy and paste the entire question on, on Google. I asked Rabbi Google, what's going on here? What comes up? All of a sudden, you know, like a few Christian websites, I'd say, oh look, a Christian atheistic website. Aha! You see over here? Contradiction in the Old Testament. This one says over here, this one says over here. I'm like, okay, now I begin to understand it. This is, this is years ago when I first began starting doing this. Now, Hashem, I'm able to pick this up fairly quickly. But beforehand, I used to go and I used to have to search it. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. This guy doesn't have questions on Torah. He's looking for questions. He didn't even, he's actually searching other websites. What are contradictions on the Torah? And then he goes it, and then I answer it, and he's like, oh, okay. Two weeks later, new question. And then I, now I started copying and pasting it, and I'm like, okay, he just went, you know, question number five, question number six. And I answered this. I didn't tell him that I knew this for a certain point in time. After maybe like 10 or 15 questions, I'm like, by the way, you know, like, you could just send me the link, and I'll just deal with it that way. 
And he's like, oh, you know, like, you know how like when somebody's caught in the act, well, not really so much. So, you know, there's a bunch of negative, you know, adjectives and verbs that come out. You know, like it doesn't even make any any sense. Not really so much so that I really question the problematic things of the Torah. So much so that I have a questions on the understanding of the questions on the problems. And I'm like, what are you saying? <laughs> like, what's going on over here? What's it? You know, go, you know, like so the the, the real the real the real fundamental is is realizing where the question stems from. And I tell this to people a lot that. The way that I deal, you know, you know, people ask for advice. You know, people look for advice and they ask for, you know, they ask rabbis for advice. Majority of the time, you know ready what you need to do. And how do I go about doing it? The, the, my, I don't know if I mentioned ever this online, um, but my technique, I could say, is people ask a question and then they want an answer. But before you go to the answer, if you really delve on the question then the answer will come by itself. You'll figure out the answer. Meaning that a lot of people ask the question, be like, okay, fine, give me the answer. What am I supposed to do? Oh, hold on a second. Let's, let's figure out the question first. The more that you understand about the question, the less that you're looking for an answer. Because a lot of times is that if people don't understand their own questions, they don't realize what they're actually looking for. So and a lot of people go and focus on the answers. That's not my focus. I don't focus on the answer so much. I focus on your question. You ask the question, okay, let's focus on this question. So the more... And by the way, this is very important for business, for anything in life, relationships. There's a problem. There's a question that comes up and you want an answer. Before you delve in the answer, the more that you understand the question, the less that you need an answer for it. Because once you understand the question, the answer will all of a sudden appear to you. Because the more that you understand the problem, the solution is already over there. So this is very, very important. So when you're dealing with people that have questions on God, questions on Judaism, questions on the Torah, if you realize the source of their problems... Already you realize what their, their question is not really intellectual. They couldn't care less about it. They were abused as a child. They need to, whatever it is, they have other issues that they need to deal with. So it's very, very important in my method, my techniques, it's very, very important to deal with the problem at hand. Now, yeah. Please let him call me. Please give him my number. Um, like not an email, a phone call. Like like okay. So the question He's is like, an actual learned person, like yeah yeah. So I've had I have I have dealt with those types of people. Majority of them are not those type of people. And so the question is like this. The question is, is like what about people that actually learned a lot? They actually studied a lot. They focused a lot. They went to a lot of study and and, and they went to this this you know they came to the conclusion. They have questions. I have dealt with those type of people. Majority of them are not like that type of people. And and I say even the they think that they are that type of people. They really they're not because they have questions on things they don't understand. Once you understand, so what 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 am I trying to say is that they have a contradiction. One verse says this. Let's say one verse says this, and they have a question. It says that before you answer the question, you have to look at the problem. Do the verses really contradict each other? Do they really have a problem? One rabbi said this, one rabbi said that. Is it really a contradiction? Do you understand what the rabbi says? Do you understand what this rabbi said? In one context he said this, in one context he said this. The more that you dealt with the problem, these solutions usually fall about by themselves. And yes, so please give him my number, and I would gladly speak to him, I'll gladly be with him, and I'll gladly you know, discuss these issues. So have I. So, um, you know, like, you know, by all means. Tell him to call me, please. No, no, I'm not, like, literally, please. 
tell him, tell, tell him to call me out. I'll gladly, you know, uh, you know, deal with that. So, um, the, you know, one of the things that, you know, when dealing with this type of, uh, you know, situation is that I've, I've once had this, um, conversation, debate, argument, whatever you want to call it with somebody, and they start saying, Judaism never speaks about heaven. How do you speak about heaven that Judaism never speaks about heaven? And um, this threw me off because I'm like, I'm like, really? Is that a question or is that something that you're, you know, you have an issue? Like, I, 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 I'm like, why it threw me off was, did you ever read the Torah? And they usually say, yeah, of course I read the Torah. And then I usually go with, did you ever read the first verse of the Torah? Because <laughs> the first verse is, Bereshit para Elohim et Hashemayim et let me repeat that. Bereshit para Elohim et Hashemayim ve'et aretz. God created the heavens and the earth. What do you mean? That, you know, they say that Judaism never speaks about heaven. First, first verse. I'm like, I don't understand. Is this a trick? Or like, are you trying to... Like, the first verse is dealing with this. I'm like, which shows me that you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know about the Torah. You're asking questions on the Torah. You don't even have any fundamental understanding of the Torah and you're asking questions on it. How can you begin to ask questions on something that you don't even begin to understand? You don't begin to know. The, um, you know, the, the, the reason why I have such a problem with this is that, you know, really, the... What is such a big issue about understanding the, you know, the Torah? Like, it's, let's say somebody wants to do whatever they want to do. Let them do whatever they want to do. You want to sin? Go ahead, sin. Why do you have to go and say, the Torah is not true. God doesn't exist. It makes no sense. Because you, if you think about it, if you say that God doesn't exist, the Torah doesn't exist, you lose your share in the world to come. It's better off to say, God exists, the Torah exists. I don't... I'm doing whatever I want to do. You're still going to end up with the same solution. You're still going to go and you're still going to, you know, follow up whatever it is that you want to follow up. Why go and say it doesn't exist? Why go and say, like, it makes no sense. You're losing your share in the world to come. Rather, what's the reason? The reason is cognitive dissonance. If I say that God doesn't exist, if I say the Torah is not true, I don't feel so bad about myself, about doing my sins. So I'll do my sins. It's justification. People lose... People lose their share in the world to come for justification. That's the scary part of it. They'll lose their share in the world to come for justification. Now, what about dealing with the accuracy of, of transmission? So we are saying that the Torah, the Torah that we have nowadays is exactly the same as the Torah that we had in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, the question is that you ever hear a broken telephone? So broken telephone is you say, you say, you know, one, two, three, four. By the time... It goes around the room, it comes out to, you know, ACDC, or whatever it is. It doesn't come numbers anymore. Like, it comes something completely different. How is it that broken telephone works one way? So how is it the Torah? The Torah, it's, you know, it's, it, a, lot of ta- a lot of it was transmission. Father to son, you know, student to rabbi, you know, rabbi to student, so on and so forth. How do we know we got the same thing? Broken telephone says one thing. You know, the, the Torah, how do we know that we have exactly the same Torah that we have, you know, in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu? Okay, so what you're saying, yeah, which is right. What you're saying is that there's so many people, not thousands, millions of people saw, heard the Torah given. So what happens is there's so many people, it's being transferred, you know, so many people, which is right. Which It's going through so many ears, so so many different people, everyone's collaborating and say, yeah, that's what I heard, that's what I heard, that's what makes sense. But there's even more to that. Can I say, let's say you play the, the idea of broken telephone. Can you go and say, and this is very, very important, can you go and say, can, can you give a mathematical equation where it's 100% accuracy is guaranteed? 
which means is can we play broken telephone and I could say and I could set up the environment to say that 100% you're going to say exactly what I'm going to say and you're going to tell her what exactly what you're, what you're going to say and everything's going to go exactly the same by the time I get back to me a thousand a million people it's going to be exactly the same as it when I left off is it possible to say that? I thought I was almost going to be able to go through a whole class, but I didn't. The answer is, is that you could. Mathematically, you could predict with 100% accuracy the transmi- transmitting a verbal message. Now, how does that go? You could go through a very few simple you know, um, steps. Number one is, one of the reasons why broken telephone doesn't work is you don't hear the person. The person says one, two, three, four, but the person is English. And you're American. And it says, one, two, three, four. And he says, he says, one, two, feet, four. And you go on, he says, one, two, feet, four. But you're Australian, let's say. So, what's feet in Australian? So, one, two, you know, fight, four, you know, fight. And then the person behind you, let's say, is American. And he says, one, two, fight, you know, four. And by the time he gets afterwards, it's going through, you know, Sweden. And by the time he gets back, it's, you know... You know, X, Y, Z. It's a completely different, you know, thing, and it's, it changes completely. Can you make it that it's one of 100% accuracy? And you could. Let's say, let's use a simple example. Let's say I'm talking to you right over here. Now, I'm going to say one sentence. How do I know that you're going to hear my one sentence? I have to say it loud enough. It has to be clear enough. I have to know that you understand it. There's a few criteria. Once I get all those criteria out, let's say it's two people in the room. And you're concentrating, you're focused, and I'm going to tell you one sentence. And I say it loud enough, I say it clear enough, you understand it. Is it safe to say that you understand everything that I said 100%? Anybody? Still no? Yes? One person no, one person yes, the rest people? Yes? No? I don't know. 50-50? Yes? Okay, 75? No still? Nobody else is unsure? Okay, the, let's take it one step further. Let's say that I'm going to tell you this, you're going to understand everything that I say. I'm saying it loud enough and clear enough and everything is comprehensive and I say if you don't understand what I'm going to say and you're going to repeat it, it's going to be terrible, terrible consequence for you if you don't repeat it exactly what I say. Did that up my chances a little bit? Yeah. All of a sudden up my chances a little bit. Okay, good. Okay. Now, what if I say that you're going to be telling this to your child and your child needs to know exactly everything that I say, and it has to be clear. And if you don't say it, it's going to be you're going to suffer terrible consequences if you don't say exactly what I say. What's the likelihood of that going directly as I said it? I don't think it's 100%. Maybe not, but I still went up. We're still human. Yeah, you're still human. But let's say I tell you a sentence like this: You are not allowed to work on Shabbat. Now I said it fairly clearly. One sentence, only one sentence. We're doing one, 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 we're doing a short, short. I said one sentence. I said it very clearly. I said it very loud. And I said, and I'm gonna tell you like this. If you don't repeat it exactly what I said, you're gonna suffer terrible consequences. Now, I'll repeat it again. How long is the sentence? It's just one sentence. Not a run on a sentence. Five words, whatever it is. Doesn't matter. Right? So if I say that, all of a sudden, I raise the bar on how likely it will be that when you understand it, you will know exactly what I said. Right? Now you're with me more. So in the beginning, not all of you with me. But now, is anybody still not with me yet? Because we'll go further. We'll take another step. Everybody's with me so far? Yeah, we're dealing with one sentence at a time. You're right. The entire time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you, you have to keep on expanding it. 
No. So we got the command. We we got the we got the commandments. But Moshe, when Moshe got the Torah, we um, we, we received the Torah, but with something that we were learning is something that that we were learning over the course of forty years. Okay. So it's it's regardless of how long I say it is, if I'm telling you something that you're telling over your children, I'm telling you something that you're going to have to suffer severe consequences if you don't follow exactly what I say. If I'm telling you a numerous other, you know, other criteria, all of a sudden, the probability, statistically speaking, on that you're going to understand what I'm saying is going to go up. Right? Everyone's going to, everyone's going to understand that. Which means that there is a formula that we could say, yeah. Wasn't it difficult for the people when they did receive the, t- the actual Torah and they knew everything that's in it, for them to kind of bring it into their personal lives? Because they were, for, for since the beginning of time, they were... No, no, no. I understand that, but when they received the Torah, like... No, your question is good. For them, like, how can you oh, go from oh, doing yeah. something for, like, since the beginning of time to, okay, you have to do this, this is in the Torah now. Wasn't it hard for them to transition? Your question is, is, can't, is it, was it difficult for somebody? It's, by the way, it's an excellent question. The question is like this. Is it somebody, is it somebody? <laughs> okay, okay. I did an exclamation point at the end. I don't know if you saw that. Okay, so um, the question is very good. Is, you know, like, they, there was so much going on, right? So, that, you know, like, how much did they receive? How were they able to get it? it? Were they able to comprehend everything? They were living life one way, and all of a sudden they have to change life another way. Very difficult. How, that is a very, very good question, but it also proves the validity of the Torah. Because put it this way, there's so much that they have to change, correct? Yes. There's so much that was going on, correct? Yes. So if they changed everything from 0 to 100, they did, they did everything. Wow. To the T? To the Gosh. T. To the T. How do we know to the T? Because we know that there was only one person who violated the Shabbat. That's how, to the extent. There's a pasuk in the, you know, regarding the gathering, the sticks of by, by the Shabbat, whatever. Did he die? Yes. So, um, so, but what you see over here is that if there's so much change going on, and they had to change so much, then must be the only way that they're going to do that if it was legit. No one's going to be like, I think I heard a voice. You hear a voice? Yeah, we heard a verse. Yeah, you heard a verse. Ten commands, right? Eleven? What year? Nine? Eight? Seven? No, every, it was very clear. It was very loud, very clear. Everybody heard everything. It was not something that we're like, okay, we're not sure, maybe yes, maybe no, no, no. It was very clear. There was no conflicting ideas of saying maybe yes, maybe not. When you're dealing with clarity of that level, there's no question about like, yeah, we have to do it. Let's put it this way. Imagine, let's say, uh, you know, a woman by the name of Shillery becomes president, right? <laughs> and this, you know, Shillery... Uh, goes and, uh, and says, you know, changes the entire system and says, listen, if anybody, if anybody wears a skirt, death penalty. Right? And this is what Shrillery says. And, um, this, this, uh, um, this, you know, like it comes out all everywhere. Like, is there, like, that's a, that's a very, very, that's a, you know, like skirts, you know, like most people wear, you know, like, at least in you know the Jewish Orthodox you know population that wears skirts. Now they start saying, if you wear skirts, you're going to die death penalty. Are you going to be able to say, well, what did you mean? You know, did you mean real skirts inside the house, outside? No, like if you heard it, like if it was clear and it was clear cut, then you know exactly what she says. Only when all of a sudden there's some problematic things that are coming up as a question, then's when you can start asking questions. But if something is clear, you don't ask questions on it. Make sense? Like you know, you're in a bank, right? 
you're making a deposit, not a withdrawal, because you're a success, right? And you're, you're depositing in the bank, and four clowns come in, dressed like clowns, with shotguns, not made out of balloons. And they blast one in the ear, just for, you know, so you understand they mean business. And they say, everyone get down, and if you make a noise, you're dead. Are you going to be like, what if I sneeze? You know, I'll be like, you know, like if you're going to be that person... They're going to be like, you, come with us. Stand here. Everybody, look what happens to somebody who thinks they're smart. And they say, open your mouth. And then they take the shotgun. And they say, taste this. The next person. What about if I cough? Be like... You need to go to a mental institution. Because you're obviously not mentally all there. Like, the more clear that something is, the less questions that you have. You understand what I'm saying? The more clear that something, the less questions that you have. So back in the time when the Jews got the Torah, it was so clear, there was no questions. There was no like, let's test mommy to see how serious she is about so this new rule. It might have been like that. Sorry, I don't mean to um, yeah. contradict your... But they were in a desert where they didn't really have any distractions. So it's, it's not, it's like, you're like, what else? Like, they only had, you know, like... They had nothing going for them, basically. <laughs> basically. So what you're saying is a very interesting question. They had nothing going for them. They were in a desert. They had nothing doing it. What about the people that were married to their aunts? And halakhically, you're not allowed to marry your aunt. And after the Torah was given, they had to divorce their aunts. They did? Yes. See, see, what about that? that? Like, even though they know that they have to with clarity, wasn't there, like... Like inside, they, they kind of didn't want to. Like I'm talking about emotional aspects of it, not just factual. Yeah, they did everything because you said it's clear that they had to. But like, how do they all feel collectively having to do these things? Having to excellent, excellent. And all that? Uh, I'm very happy. Yeah. So the question is like this. The question is like, they just got laws, and they just got laws, but like. They love this person. It's difficult for them. They're going through something. They have to make a tremendous change. How are they going to be able to go into, and change that? Now, let's let's when you're trying to put the, yourself yourself in their shoes, right? But let's try to put the, yourself in their shoes, right? Let, let's really back. Let's go look at what actually happened over there. They were slaves in Egypt, right? Yeah. Then they got. Let's just clarify that they were slaves in Egypt in a place that. They were not able, no one was ever, ever able to escape that type of situation. Not only did they escape one person, the entire nation, men, women, and children, animals with gold and jewelry and like money, they were able to just like walk right out of Egypt. In a place that not only was it difficult to escape, you're dealing with black magic that you're dealing with over there. You know, like, you're, you're like crazy, you know, stuff. And if you don't understand what I'm talking, imagine you're stuck in a house, right? In a haunted house, let's just say, right? Haunted hotel. Let's make it more realistic. Now, you go to this hotel, and there's a person that's want to check you in, very pale person, you know, borderline albino situation going on, right? They go over there, and they'll be like, yes, you're going to be in room 666, you know, like, of course, you know, and they go, and they give you the key, and, you know, if you, and, and you're going, and you're sitting over there, and you come up over there, you go into the, you lock, you close, you open up the hotel room, and as you walk into the hotel room, there's a friendly ghost that comes in, just like floats behind, you know, and, you know, whatever, call him whatever you want. And, he goes, this, this ghost goes in and says, you're not gonna leave this place in 24 hours, and if you do, you will die. 
And then they prove it to you by showing you 10 miraculous plagues that this ghost does. Um, no relation, by the way. Um, and, um, they show, and you're like, okay, what do you do? You sit on the chair and you don't move for 24 hours. You don't sleep, you don't talk, you don't breathe, you don't eat, you don't drink, you don't do anything, but you're just sitting there and you're existing for 24 hours. Now, 22 hours go out and you're like, let's, let, you know, like, I, you know, I really want to go out. And you try to go out the door. So you open the door, and the second that you open the door, 10,000 demons go <laughs> at you. And you close the door, and you sit down, and you urinate in the chair. <laughs> and you're like, okay, 24 hours. 24 hours. We'll just stay here for 24 hours. Like, are you going to be like, well, how did you feel? Was it difficult for you to stay for the 20? Like, No. I was scared of my life. I was standing exactly where I was, where I was, because there was no other thoughts that were going through my mind. You have to realize, the Jews, when they were going out of Egypt, I'm not saying that they were scared that they were urinating in the back, they saw so many miracles, they saw, they, it was, the truth was so obvious for them, there was no question to be like, well, how do I know this is true? You know, like, maybe God meant, it was not, it was nothing like that, it was so clear cut, the idea with prophecy, the way that we discuss, and this is the level that the Jews reached when they left Egypt, the, the idea of prophecy is that everything was so clear cut, when everything is so clear, you don't ask questions because there's no questions to deal with. That's why when you when a person dies, right now we have a lot of questions. We have a question, okay, how come this is happening up, this is happening us? When when a per, after 120, when a person dies, there are no more questions. It's not it's not that oh you have answers now to your questions. Like, oh, you know why you had a hard life? Because X, Y, and Z. You know why you had this? You couldn't get married for so long time? X, Y, and Z. You know why you had to be born in this family and not this family? You know why you had to be born here and you had to convert over here? We have so many questions. Everyone has so many questions. After you die, not, it's so much clarity that your questions are not even questions. They, they don't even begin. There was once a big rabbi who went and he, and he went to his, his student. The student was sick. And his student had nine daughters. And he says, Rabbi, I need a favor. Can you marry off my nine daughters? That's a huge favor, by the way. <laughs> Nowadays, especially back then. And he says, sure, not a problem. I'll do it on one condition. The condition is, is that you come to me, and there was a lot of problems that happened to the Jews. If I'm not mistaken, I believe this was Ramban. And he says, there's a lot of problems that are happening to the Jews. Come and tell me why these are happening. And the rabbi, and the person passed away. The rabbi started marrying off. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. No response. After the ninth child was married off, the, the rabbi gets a visit in his dream with, with, his, with his student who passed away. And uh, the student comes and says, you know, Rabbi, I just want to appreciate it. I want to thank you for everything that you did for my daughters and everything that you married them all. I really appreciate it. So the rabbi said, listen, I had my end of the deal. Why don't you hold your end of the deal? You're supposed to tell me why so many problems are happening to the Jews. So the, um, so the student goes and says, he says, Rabbi, what can I tell you? He says, you have questions. He says, up here where I am, the questions are not even questions. There's nothing even to answer it because everything is so clear and makes so much sense. Like the question doesn't even begin to begin as a question. When you're dealing with such clarity, when you're dealing with such a level of clarity, there is no question that comes up. Like, what do you mean the Torah? The Torah is rigid. Of course it's real. Like there's no questions. Okay, what about this? What about that? If everything is 100% legit, the questions fall away. There's nothing even begins to, you know, problematic. That is why, I don't know if you guys realize, like why I go so, so harsh and so strong on understanding the validity of the Torah. Because once you understand the strength of the Torah, once you understand the, the, the authenticity of the Torah, Every other question that you have falls into the sideline. It doesn't make a difference. Like it's, it's not even, the, the question's not even a question because I know the truth. I know the emet. I know the emunah. I know the bitachon. I know what I need to have. You, the more that you understand the problem, the less the question has, the, the more that you understand the problem, the less that you need an answer for it. 
So when you're dealing with people in those days, they saw God so clear cut that everything that they had, there was no question to deal with. There was no like, okay, it was difficult for them. It, it was so clear cut that it was obvious. It's like, you know, when, when is it difficult? When do we have difficult decisions in our life when we're not sure? If we're sure about something, the decisions are all of a sudden very easy. People come to me all the time, should I continue dating this person or should I not continue dating this person? Should I go into the business or should I not go into the business? And you know when you have this question when you're unsure. But let's say you're dating this person and this person has mental issues. Every so often she, you know, like, you know, she's walking in there and, you know, she's like eating the meal nicely, the spaghetti, and all of a sudden she's like, <laughs> and you're like, what's she doing? She's like, you know, she walks around the restaurant doing this. You don't ask a rabbi, be like, hey, rabbi, I have a question. Should I continue dating this girl? Like, what's the problem? Well, every Thursday she turns into Trinosaurus Rex. I've never gotten that question before. Because if ever that happens, you know with complete certainty, hey, this is not going to work out. You might say, hey, it's not you, it's me. Or it's not you, it's your mother, whatever it is. I don't know, whatever. You know, like, whatever it is that you say, you know with certainty. When you know something with certainty, the questions fall apart. It's hard for us to understand because we don't have that type of clarity. Even if we have, like, moments and little bits and pieces of clarity for certain decisions here and there, we don't have that. You're right. And that's why you're supposed to ask your rabbis. You're supposed to ask your, your you know, your, your mentors for, for these types of questions. When did the Jews, like, start, like, assimilating and, like, losing that clarity? So when did the Jews start assimilating? You know, so it's a good question. So over a period of time, the Jews were were in a cycle like this, right? But where it went really bad was the reform movement. Until then, the majority of the Jews were really. I mean, you always had people that were not, you know, the, the ideology. I've always had the, the, you know, the, you know, the problematics. But where where it went really bad, if I you were to ask me, you're looking at history, reform. When did that happen? About two hundred years ago. Maybe 150, 200 years ago, yeah. Because whatever, I don't want to go into reform with a whole class. I want to speak about that as well. But um, when you're dealing with the reform, it started off in one way, and then it just like domino effect into. Did it happen in a specific part of the world, like Europe? Yeah, Europe? Germany. Yeah. Oh, that's before the Holocaust, way before the Holocaust. No, I know, but like, makes yeah. Sense. So, um, and it's so funny. I thought that I was going to get through two. Of the, I didn't even finish one. That's how you know, like. Um, yeah, please. Um, might as well. <laughs> We're nowhere close to anywhere. So, um, sure. Okay. Excellent question. When when it says that Moshe gave us a Torah, what do we mean by Moshe gave us a Torah? That means the six hundred and thirteen commandments. When we, this is very important because people start thinking, okay, the Chumash, everything in the Chumash is six hundred and thirteen commandments. Is all in the is all in the five books of Moses. Nothing else is in the is in the Tanakh. Tanakh. By the way, the six hundred and thirteen commandments very important to, to you know to understand this. So if I wanted to know all six hundred thirteen, five books of Moses. If you want to know anything, five books of Moses. Five books of Moses. Start reading. Start reading. You mean like the partial stuff? Yep. Well, you have to obviously know that's where the oral talk comes in. Isn't there spiritual genetics to oh, go man. like this? We're supposed to speak about the oral talk. Right? We have so much to go through. Because <laughs> uh, I have to at least finish one of the 13 but principles. Is there right? spiritual genetics to go like this? No. It, uh, is it spiritually, you know, is it already like predisposed that you're supposed to go up and down? Not necessarily. Some people just go up, some people just go down. But like, it. But, but then. Uh, 
It's complicated in my brain. I can't even explain what I want. Think about it. Okay, let's try to do something like this. It's getting very late. Uh, let's try to finish up at least this principle of faith. And then, then we'll open up to questions. And then we'll, uh, um, you know, hopefully, you know, be, you know, I, I, you know it's, so, it's, so, it's so fascinating to me. Like, because this was supposed to take me, this entire thing was supposed to take me 20 minutes. I was supposed to go to the next principle of faith. And now, not only did we not even, get, we, didn't, we didn't even begin, like, we just scratched the surface of one. Um, but I have to say that I would not change anything. I think it was very important. There's a lot of important aspects that we spoke about today, and I think it's very, very important, uh, you know, to deal with it. And, and I hope that you guys got clarity, uh, you know, on that, uh, you know, on the, uh, you know, on those subjects. Okay, but let's let's deal with this. So we started off with with saying the broken telephone, right? Meaning is there's a certain way that you could say that if you put certain factors into place, there is a you could put it up to 100% accuracy that the that it will not be a broken telephone. It will just be a telephone. It will just be like everything will come exactly the same. Now we look at you know when the Torah was given, Moshe Moshe wrote the Torah. He wrote before he died. He wrote 13 Torah scrolls. Torah scrolls, one to each of the tribes, and the thir- that's 12 tribes. The 13th one went into the into the ark. What was the ark there? The ark was there to like as as sort of like a I don't want to say a backup, but if if we need to go and check up on other on other Torah scrolls, that's where we would look at. Ah, you want to see if this Torah scroll is legit? Let's take it out from the ark. Let's see what it is. So there was always there was thirteen Torah scrolls that were given by Moshe Rabbeinu that were always checked to see the validity of all the other scrolls to make sure that they were they were kosher and they were true. Now there's a midrash in Dvarim Rabbah that speaks. And, so, and brings off the Midrash and the Talmud brings up over 20 characters of the, uh, you know, and how do you know the, to- the Torah has to be kosher? In order to write a Torah, in order to, to for a sofa to write a Torah, it's a, it's a tremendous amount of work. And you're talking about over 2,000 hours that you needed to write a Torah. And not only that, a lot of the Soflim that write a Torah, it takes them a full year's job, full time, to write a Torah. That's how much, and so it costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of money to, you know, to, you know, to write this Torah. Now, if one letter is added in Torah, not one word, one letter is added to Torah, the Torah is disqualified. Not a kosher Torah. You're not allowed to read from it anymore. If one letter is added, one letter is deleted. It's not. It has to be written by a learned pious Jew. It can't be written by just some Shemo who just knows how to draw very nicely. It has to be written by a learned pious Jew. And the Jew is not allowed to go and write it by heart. He has to write it from another kosher Torah scroll. So even if he's a genius, he knows everything by heart, he can't just write it by heart. He has to go and look at it. Now when he looks at it, he also has to say it out loud when he writes it. Now when he says it out loud and he writes it, what if the letters are not enough far spaced apart? And one letter is touching another letter. One letter it looks like another letter. It's not kosher. It has to be completely clear and concise and, and so, not concise, I'm sorry. It has to be complete, completely clear that, that you know exactly what the word means. And if the, if the word gets a little bit rubbed out, that you're not sure what the word means, and one letter gets rubbed out, not kosher. You have 30 days to fix it. Isn't it printed? No. It's all of them are handmade? Every single kosher one is handmade. Because that they're yeah yeah because they take they take a really long time to do it. What? Yeah, so but they draw it in and you're just coloring it in. I've done that, you know. So have you ever you know if you write a sefer Torah, you you know like let's say you want to write a sefer Torah. So I'm not a sofel. I don't know how to write a sefer Torah, but I wanted to write in a sefer Torah. I wanted to. Write, and it can't be like you know like, you know. You know, Shul Zichon was here. You know, you can't just do that. And the, the, you want to write a letter in the Sefer Torah, you have to write it. Firstly, you should go to the Mikvah beforehand. You should, you know, put yourself in a high level. That's what you're supposed to do. So, you have to be at a high level. Generally, they should ask, so what do they do? They, they do it like a coloring book. The Sofel goes, and he's sitting right next to me. I've been over there. So the Sofel sat right next to me, the one who wrote the Sefer Torah. But what do he do? Instead of writing the letter in, he wrote the letter, but you have to color it in. You cut, you know, stay in the lines, right? You color it, you color, you literally color the, the letter in. Well, you did that. Then you fix it. And he fixes That's it. Cool. Yeah. 
So, so you go. Why does it have to be written and not? Why can't it be like I don't know? Computerized. Let's deal with that afterwards. There's a particular reason for that. So, um, women are not allowed to write it. Right. Women are not so free, and they, they don't, uh, uh, you know, they don't write it. Yeah. That's it? Okay. All right. So, um, you know, you know, Rep. Shimshel from Frau Hirsch. Uh, no, no. I'm sorry. Rep. Shimshel Pincus. I read this in the Sefer from Shimshel Pincus. He spoke over it to somebody and he says, uh, and he wanted to find out why this guy became religious. And he says, you know why I became religious? He says, because I was learning a page of Gemara. And you're learning a page of Gemara, and you read over here, the Gemara says this. So the, the Mishnah says something, the Gemara asks the questions. Then the, then the Gemara answers it. Then the Masha, then, then you have Rashi. Rashi gives an explanation, and Tosfos argues on the Rashi. Then you have the Masha asks a question on that. Rabbi Kiva Eger answers. The Biskar Rab goes and explains this question. And it goes back and forth. You have, you have like, you know, so many rabbis are going in, and they're, they're dissecting every little aspect of, of, you know, of the Gemara. And you know, the guy says, you know why I became religious? He says, when I see something that goes through so much scrutiny, so there's no way that this is false. You don't see that in the New Testament. Huh, well, Jesus said this, and you know, Mark said this, and you know, and Tiffany said this. You know, like you know, you know, you don't, you don't go, you don't have that over there because the second that you start breaking apart something that's false, you see that it's false. But if you break apart something that is true, there's nothing else. You, 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 it's it's true. There's, there's nothing else that you deal with. You know, there's um, people, you know, in the army, whatever, they practice it, they take apart the, the gun and they put it back together again. And they sometimes they do it on the speed, they go, you know, fast and they put it in and they clean it and they put it. You can't start placing in a bunch of false objects. You can't put that inside the gun anymore. The gun is not going to work the same way when you start introducing, you know, false ideas. You know, if you have the manufacturer's, you know, you know thing, you're going to be able to go and you're going to be able to put everything back together again. The, you know, there, there is a, um, there's an organization called Arachim, which is in, um, in Israel, they, they do some sort of outreach. And they said, listen, they said, they, they get a bunch of like not religious people together, and they say, um, you know those people that had those claims that the Holocaust never existed? Mm-hmm. So they said to these people, I said, listen, um, let's say somebody comes over to you, and you want to start an organization that makes sure that no one ever forgets about the Holocaust. What would you do? And they broke them up into groups, and it says you present your data of what needs to be done to make sure that the Holocaust will never be forgotten. So, you know, they each came up with certain ideas. You have to make a Holocaust association. You have to make sure that they wear special clothing on the day of the Holocaust. They special every day of the year. They go and, and they speak about the Holocaust. And they keep on, and they say, all the, you know, they give all these criteria. Then when they present all these criteria, the person in charge of the Achim Sanmar says, okay, let's see now what, let's look about the Torah. And they pick up the Exodus. Now let's see, the Saturday night, every year we speak about the Exodus. We dress a certain way, we speak a certain way, you have Tefillin, we have Mizuzah, we have everything a certain way. So what they're trying to do is that you want to make sure that something is, that is presented is never going to be forgotten, and you gave the criteria that's required for it, where the Achim Sanamar shows out and says like, look, everything that you said is already implemented in Torah Judaism. Everything that you just mentioned, and they prove it, and they say, listen, you just said they have to wear this, now they're wearing something. They have to speak about it every year, they speak about it every year. They have to make sure, they have to gathering, everything that they come out, they always come out with it. They also do it, they, they do another, you know, type of exercise. They split people into group, and it says you're an, you're an enemy, enemy, enemy territory, and you have to send out a secret message to your, to your uh, team. How are you gonna make sure that the secret message goes out to the team? So they said, okay, listen, we have to make sure we have to put in a code. And we have to make sure we have to send it through multiple routes. And not only have to make sure, you have to make sure that you keep, a, you know, the original. And you keep on going, and they keep on going giving different, different criteria. At the end, they gather all the criteria and they show that each and every single one of them are all implemented in the Torah. You go and, you know, you realize the Torah is, is something that is, that is, you know, like, it's not only just because of us. You know, like, you know, we're in America. You have everywhere around the world, all the Jews keep the same exact Torah. 
everybody keeps the same exact law. Customs, slightly different. The halakha is exactly the same. You know, everything is exactly, you, you, there's, there's no difference at the law, which shows you, that, which just gives you the proof of like, everything came exactly the way it was from the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. When you're, even furthermore, you could say that, you know, no father would ever want to teach his son a lie. They wouldn't. They wouldn't want to. Even, you know, at least in their dying breath, they say, listen, I told you a lie. They wouldn't want to go and teach their, their children a lie. The fact that we have generation after generation where the father's teaching their son, fathers and son, fathers and son, mothers and daughters, whatever, fathers and daughters, whatever it is, generation to generation, they're telling him, listen, keep the Torah, keep the mitzvah, keep the halacha, keep everything over here. No father would ever want to treat, you know, cheat his, his child. If the father is saying something, there must be something to it. There must be something, either the, the father must be, you know, you know, fixed or must have been, you know, cheated on. But once you go back a certain point in time, you know, the, 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 these, you know, doesn't, it, it doesn't make any sense. Let's finish off with, uh, with uh, one concept of the, you know, the, you know, the oral Torah as well. This is something we spoke about before. The oral Torah, by the way, if someone doesn't believe in the oral Torah, also has no share in the world to come. Somebody who doesn't believe in the oral tradition has no share in the world to come. When the Torah was given, the Torah was given as a, it was given as, as a, you know, as a written Torah, and then it was given as the explanation. The explanation, by the way, the Torah was first given as orally. Everything was first orally, not 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 first as 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 written. Only later it was written. But the Torah was given orally, and it says in Exodus chapter twenty-four, verse twelve, that it says over there, It says that God is going to give you the Torah and the mitzvah. What's the Torah? The commandment and the the Torah. The, I mean, sorry, the Torah and the commandment, the mitzvah. What does that mean? The Torah means the the, the written Torah. What's the mitzvah? The mitzvah is the oral law, which means is that every single biblical commandment that was given had to be given, it was must given, that it was given with an explanation. How do you how do you do it? How do we know that? Where's the proof for that? This is something we spoke about before. First of all, first and foremost, there's no vowels in the Torah. So there's 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 verses in the Torah that don't make sense unless you have vowels. For example, Exodus chapter 23 verse 18. It says, You're not allowed to go and leave fats of an animal until the morning. This is speaking about certain sacrifices. Now, Chalev is Chet Lamed Bet. It can be spelled Chalev or it can be spelled Chalav. Fats or milk. Very different interpretation. Can you, can you not leave the fats until morning? Or can I leave the milk until morning? Very different. How do you know what's going to be the right one? There's no vowels in the Torah. If you ever look inside a Torah, there's no vowels. How do you know how to pronounce each, each word? Rather, it has to be an oral law. There has to be an oral tradition. So you, I don't know. This is saying Chalav. This is talking about fats. Not, it's referring to, mi- to milk. There's another pasuk in Bamidbar, Numbers, chapter 29, verse 1. It says regarding Rosh Hashanah, Yom Tuwa It's going to be a day of shofar blowing. A sound blowing is a better yet. What's a shofar? Is it a whistle? Is it a horn? Is it someone doing with their, with their fingers? Is someone doing with the tongue? Is it someone doing, you know, it could be a num- numerous different things. How do you know what it is? It's the oral law. In Exodus chapter 31 verse 14, it says regarding Shabbat, Mechalalea Mot Yumat. If you desecrate Shabbat, you will die. How do you desecrate Shabbat? The Torah doesn't say. How are you supposed to, you imagine how, how odd is that? So you go to some, you go to Shillery, I'm sorry, uh, Shillery, and, um, um, Eastwood, and you go to Shillery Eastwood, and you say like this, say, um, um, you know, if you wear pants, there's gonna be a terrible punishment. And then, that's, that's nice, that's so on. But it says, if you do this in a certain way, you will die as a punishment. And they ask question, what's this? I'm not gonna tell you. I'm not gonna tell you. No, you figure it out. Yeah, that's that's very. I mean, it's very chivalry, right? It's very, it's it's very. You know, it's a terrible. You know, like nobody would say that. The Torah says if you desecrate the Shabbat, you're going to die. How do you desecrate Shabbat? The Torah doesn't say what it means to desecrate Shabbat. 
What do you mean you work on Shabbat? What do you rely on that? You lie on the, on the, on the oral law. The, you know, the, I can't even begin. No, I don't want to get too much off topic. Okay. Yeah, afterwards. Just, just today I was dealing, you know, dealing with something else regarding this topic. The, the oral law is a requirement to understand the written law. It's a requirement. So, if you're going and you're denying the oral law, you have no share in the world to come. The idea that we have the same Torah as Moshe Rabbeinu, meaning that oral and written are all exactly the same. Now, why wasn't the Torah written? Why wasn't the oral law written? When you go and, uh, let's say you want to learn how to fly a plane. Can you just say, hey, listen, I studied the books really well. I'm good to go. No, you can't. You have to have physical experience on it. If let's say you want to become a surgeon, you could learn, you could have studied medicine in Columbia, Harvard, Oxford, all the top, you know, Ivy League colleges. No, I'm not talking about just like, I'm talking about you went to the fourth year of medical school through all of them. But if you never did residency, if you never went and actually practiced surgery, nobody's going to ever say, yeah, I want you to do surgery. But I studied in 12 Ivy League schools. I couldn't care less. They'll take somebody off of community college that studied medicine that had went through residency and practiced it physically than, than somebody that went through 12 Ivy Leagues and never actually touched a scalpel in his life. You know, never, never once went through surgery in his life. Why is that? Because you need to actually have to have a, a connection. You have to have somebody that's going to say, listen, this is what we're doing. We're cutting this open. And here you see this is this body part, this is this body part, and this is what we're doing now. You have to have a physical type of interaction. The Torah is the same way. If the Torah, everything would have been written and nothing would have been oral, then you could have just learned everything off the books. The problem is that you would have came through radical errors. But rather, if you would have something that he'd say, no, listen, you need an oral tradition. You need to have a rabbi-student relationship. Why? Because there's so many intricate parts in the Torah that the only way that you'll understand it is if you will have an oral tradition. If you will have a rabbi, because otherwise there's no way to understand the Torah. You're gonna be, have, you're gonna make tremendous radical errors. So this is why the Torah was, in, it was intended, it was needed to, that it should have an oral aspect of it, because it couldn't have given all, all writtenly, because if it was given all writtenly, people have made radical, radical errors. Let's do a quick recap and then we'll, we'll, we'll open up for our questions. The idea over here we started off with is that the Torah they gave today is the same exact Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu gave. Meaning that there is everything that we have today regarding the broken telephone, of the trend, everything that we have today. Now what is so important about this? That, that you have to realize that if everything that we have today that you cannot make any changes to the Torah. You cannot make any changes in the Torah. The Torah is exactly the same. Now, this is what we started speaking about, modern orthodoxy, where people start saying, okay, listen, I listen to this, but I listen to, don't listen to this. I didn't even begin speaking about reform, because that's not even to speak about. You're dealing with modern orthodoxy, people that believe that they're religious, people that are religious, and how do you believe that you're religious if you don't follow the Torah? But you say, no, I don't follow this. You know what the answer is? You don't learn Torah. 35% of men, 15% of women learn Torah every single day. If you don't learn Torah every single day, how do you expect to understand what you need to follow? How do you expect to understand what you need to do? You have to go and you have to learn. Otherwise, there's no way of you understanding the correct thing that you need to do. And this is so important. When we're dealing on the 13 principles of faith, we're saying that the Torah that we have today is exactly the same. Meaning that exactly the same that you have to follow everything to the T exactly the way that the Moshe Rabbeinu followed, the Moshe Rabbeinu gave it over. And if you don't, then you're not following the Torah. The biggest, biggest shame is that people that go, they change the Torah, they don't follow the Torah, and they convince themselves, and they convince other people that they're okay. If you are, think that you're okay, you'll never change. I repeat this very often. If you don't think that you have a problem, you will never change. The only time that you will begin and you will ever change is only if you realize that you'll have a problem. This is in relationships, this is in, you know, this is in business. If, if somebody thinks that they're doing business right, and the business is losing money, then guess what? The business is going to lose money until they go bankrupt. Only until when they start realizing that, hey, wait, maybe I'm doing something wrong. If you're in a relationship, you're in marriage, and you're going to marriage happen, and you think you're always correct, and your wife thinks she's always correct, or your husband thinks always correct, and you both think you're correct, and you don't think you don't need to change, guess what? You're going to tank. 
you're going to go and you're going to end up in divorce, you're going to end up in bankruptcy, you're going to end up following the wrong thing. The first step in realizing that you're doing something wrong is realizing you're doing something wrong. And how can you realize you're doing something wrong if you think you're following this modern orthodoxy? Again, it's not all modern orthodox people are following this wrong thing. There's some modern orthodox that are following 100% alakha. But as we saw before, I'm looking, I'm just reading statistics, that there are many that don't follow alakha. If you're not following alakha and you think that you're okay, then you're doomed for failure and you'll never, you'll, you'll never succeed in life. You'll never, you'll never pass your test that you need to pass. Clear? For whatever we spoke about today, right? A thousand <laughs> different things. Okay, any questions? So why wasn't it typed or anything? So why is the Torah written? You said you were going to tell Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is the Torah written? Why does it have to be written? Why was the Torah... Yeah, like oh, okay, okay, okay. okay. Computer, like, thank you, thank you. Yeah. So why was the Torah? Why was the Torah? Why can't the Torah be? Um, why can't the Torah be manually? Uh, not manually, computerized, right? Computerized. So, in order to you know, in order to understand that, let me. I have to delve a little, a little bit into Kabbalah, you know, to understand this um, Kabbalistic concept. There is a difference. Uh, you know, have you ever heard of the idea of kamel? Anybody here know what a kamel? An amulet? Anybody know what an amulet is? So the idea of an amulet is you have some holy rabbi write special verses on a special parchment, and you wear that parchment, you have that parchment, and that would that would give you tremendous amount of I don't want to say luck, power, but you know Something. that in that family, mazal, you know that family. So what causes the power in these amulets? Is it the words in it? Because if it's the words, we know the words, we could just print it, man, we could print it, and that's what it has. But rather, what causes the holiness of these amulets? The way that it causes the holiness of these amulets is the writer. The writer, the holier the writer, the holier the amulet is. The holier the amulet is. There's certain kavanot that when a, when a Kabbalist writes these amulets, has to have in mind. So when you're dealing with certain spiritual context of spiritual, uh, you know, that's why you have tefillin, muzuzot. Like, they can be kosher. But imagine you have a tefillin, that was written or was kept by the Baal Shem Tov, by the Vilna Gaon. You know, like, it's worth a lot more. Why? It should be kosher, kosher, and kosher. It's, it's on a different level. It's on a different level when you're dealing with that. So the same thing with the Torah. Torah cannot be just written. There's, it, it has to be with a kavanah. It has to be with a concentration of it. Because when you're dealing in the other world, you're dealing with things that have to... There, there's a lot more that, that meets the eye. When we see the Torah, we think, okay, we just have the printed Torah. It's not just the printed Torah. There's spiritual powers in the Torah. In order for those spiritual powers to have any effect, they have to come from a spiritual kosher source. In order for it to come from a spiritual kosher source, it has to be handwritten by a spiritual kosher person. Following my my yeah. okay, um, uh, can you um, pay someone a lot of money to write a Torah in memory of someone? Yes. Oh, you can. Yes. Okay. You don't have to pay a lot of money. You just have to pay the price. <laughs> mm. It's a lot of money because the price is expensive. No, yeah, but because that's now job that I know, you, you pay them they it's a price for a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a twenty. It's like two thousand hours. It's you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, my brother-in-law just finished writing a sefer. Oh, he's he's almost finished writing a sefer Torah. It took him a tremendous amount of time. A long, long time. Because he did it over a long period of time. It wasn't just a full-time job for him for a year. He did it over you know, a period of time. But I'm saying he's, like, you know, he's been going it for a tremendous uh, you know, a long, a long period of time. Um, but he also, my, he goes to the mikvah before he writes anything. He goes, yeah, and he has, he goes, he's very, he, I mean, he's to be holy, pure right? and kosher. Yeah, everything. That's hard. Um, That's where, where, <laughs> where's the ark now? Good question. <laughs> but it's here though, right? Like somebody's took it. On planet it. Earth? What are you asking? No, yeah, like, I, I mean like someone <laughs> stole it and like they, they know where it is. Like, I feel like the Greeks took it or something. Yeah, there's different conspiracy theories that go on and, uh, 
I don't want to get into it. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. I have one more question, but it's it's not meant for outside. It's not meant for the people that interweb. Only uh, okay, fine. Anybody? Anybody else have questions on the? Anything else on camera? We forgot to invite people. Everybody's invited to join us <laughs> at sixteen oh one Clinton Road at BJX every Thursday at eight p.m. Okay, Hazakabu. Thank you, everybody. Okay. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.